You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Curriculum, a new project from the Christian Humanist Radio Network, where we have weekly discussions about the texts that make up Columbia University's core reading list in the humanities. I'm Victoria Reynolds Farmer. I'm one of the co-founders of the Christian Feminist Podcast, and I live in Woodstock, Georgia, with my husband, Michael, of the Christian Humanist Podcast. With me today, I have regulars from two other shows on the network. First, we have Coyle Neal of the City of Man podcast. He's a political science professor from Southern Missouri, where he lives with his wife, Alexis, and their two sons. We also have David Grubbs of the Christian Humanist podcast, who's an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University. He lives in Houston, Texas, with his wife, Katie, and their four children. Thanks for being here, Coyle and David. You're very, very welcome. It's good to be here. Today's episode is going to cover books 7 through 9 of the Iliad, so listeners, if you haven't read them recently, you might want to pause, go do that, and come back to us. So, since I facilitated the previous episode as well, I want to start by reminding everyone where we left off. Book 6 ends with a, I think we agreed, fairly depressing discussion between Paris and Hector about the fact that their victory depends pretty much entirely on the whims of the gods generally, and Zeus primarily. The center of Book 7 is this man-to-man battle between Hector and an as-yet unchosen Greek that's engineered by Zeus. I started to get kind of confused that Hector repeatedly talks about honor in battle when it's so obvious, especially in this man-to-man fight, that Zeus is pulling the strings. So let's talk a little bit about how much honor gets to be individual here. Who does the outcome of the battle actually reflect on, and what does that mean? What's funny is, uh, and and even if even if uh, you very very graciously edit out the pause between your question and our answer, Victoria, there there still was a pause. Um, which is exactly like the pause uh, among the Achaeans when they were asked who's going to challenge Hector, and they all just sort of sit around looking at each other, and Menelaus calls them girly men. Um, uh, yeah, that was great. I loved that insult. <laughs> yeah. I, so the the being stepping out and risking. Uh, Risking your life, but also displaying your skill publicly in a contest with another. Um, I mean, your your personal reputation is online, um, along with your personal safety. And by this point in the book, Hector is well enough established as a threat that um, it seems as if all the all the Greek heroes, except for Achilles, who's still crying in his tent. Um, when they can, when they think about Hector, they, they pause 
and they have this moment of uh, self-doubt, self-reflection. Uh, they wonder, am I up for it? But also, if I put myself forward, do I look, um, will I look too, uh, too forward, um, perhaps? Though, I don't know, maybe is, is, is modesty at all here? Um, I, I think they're afraid pretty clearly. <laughs> so you, you, you think Menelaus nailed it? Um, well, and then Agamemnon only acts because he's afraid for Menelaus. Might be the only positive thing you can say about Agamemnon in the whole play or whole poem. <laughs> I I still haven't addressed. I, I I still haven't answered your question, Victoria, as to whether or not they get any honor for playing a for for you know going in a rigged fight. But maybe that's another reason why they're scared. Could could be. I mean, I I did say that book six does end with them saying. Essentially, we know the game is rigged, but we're doing this anyway. Yeah. But but doesn't... Oh, sorry, go ahead, David, and jump in. Oh, I was just affirming. <laughs> uh, well, is, isn't that something that, I mean, basically everyone has to deal with, right? It's it's the, we know God knows what's going to happen, right? It's it's the providence problem for, for Christians. Uh, we know he's, you know, in, in charge of the future. We know he knows what's going to happen, but we don't know that like we we don't know what is planned in the same way that the greeks know that zeus knows what the outcome is going to be but they don't know what the outcome in any specific the, the greeks don't know what the outcome is going to be in any specific battle so honor presumably comes in and uh dealing with that lack of knowledge and and uh engaging appropriately and uh not to, I'm, I'm sure we'll come back to this in, in a couple of books, but uh, of course the the big sort of question in the uh, running through the Iliad is, you know, will will Achilles stay and get his eternal glory and die young, or will he go back home and live a long life and then be forgotten? So there's even then there's still some kind of choice, even if that choice is never fully squared with the Zeus has already decided what's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, and even and below Zeus, I, I guess Zeus is sort of the ultimate providence in this scheme, would y'all say? But the other gods are also doing their dead level best to throw the fight, right? They're either they're either juicing their heroes, right, <laughs> so that they have performance performance enhancing divine powers, or um, they're interfering with the enemy, but usually they're just, you know, giving superpowers or, or, um, creating intimidating omens, things like that. Um, but they're, they're competing with each other. So is Zeus also in control of their competition? Well, he at one point says he is, um, or at least (laughs) insinuates he is. I don't know how much we're supposed to believe him, um, cause he's, he's pretty full of hot air, um, at a lot of places, but before we get there, um, I do want to mention, I, I think David, you gave me a pretty good opening to mention. There's a really interesting, um, symbol invoked by Apollo and Athena, um, before, 
before the Greek who's going to fight Hector is chosen. Um, they, I'm just going to read, uh, I have the Richmond Lattimore translation, and I'm reading from about line 57, um, and I'm, I'm just going to read a couple lines. Athena and the lord of the silver bow, Apollo, assuming the likenesses of birds, of vultures, settled aloft the great oak tree of their father Zeus of the Aegis, taking their ease and watching these men whose ranks dense settled, shuddered into a bristle of spears, of shields, and of helmets. Isn't it incredibly interesting, given the fact that we've already said, um, to a certain degree, these mortals are... Um, pawns solving disputes among gods. Isn't it interesting that they disguise themselves as A, death omens, and B, carrion birds who feed on dead bodies? Like, that that's such a good symbol, it's almost too on the nose. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Uh, it also made me think of Gosh, all the all the cartoons that I watched growing up where whenever some character is kind of crawling through the desert, you know it's going to pan up and there's a vulture on they, a dead tree. The, the, or, or the circle of three vultures, which is even worse. Yeah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> or Jungle Book. But those, those virtual vultures are fun, though. Uh, so... Yeah. We talked about um, nobody volunteering and... Menelaus calling them women. Um, what about the fact that uh, when they decide to cast lots, um, Ajax is the one who gets drawn? I feel like I felt like that was going to happen. I mean, I've read this before, but I don't really remember it. I read it like 15 years ago and haven't read it since. Um, do you have any uh, any insight into why I felt it was going to be Ajax? Does he fit here in some way? <laughs> I mean, he. This is uh, kind of like the uh, what is it the the first Avengers movie where we get like two minutes of everyone fighting everyone else because yeah. all of us want to know who's going to win the fight between you know Thor and Iron Man, right? I mean that that's 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 something every comic book fan wants to know. And we just, same thing in the Iliad. We just hadn't gotten to Ajax and Ajax and Hector yet. So I may, maybe it was a, we've, we've seen him fight everyone else and now it's Ajax's turn. Yeah. I mean, unless a character dies immediately, um, it seems as if they are, I mean, it's like a dance where they all have to dance with everybody else's partner. Um, you know, some some of them do eventually die, but most of the big heroes that I guess the audience would have known because this is immediate, you know, immediate rest. It begins in the middle of the Trojan War and it ends before the war is over. Um, the audience would generally know which of the major heroes survive. So there's not much dramatic tension in terms of whether or not they're going to die because they, they already kind of know the stories. So they are. So, so how do you build, um, how do you build that tension? Especially if they already knew the story of Achilles defeating Hector, they know that whoever he fights at this point, unless it's Achilles and it's not going to be, um, isn't going to beat him. And if it's one of the major Greek guys who they knew survives, well, same, 
So how do you create tension in that fight? Um, but I still think he, he, he does a, he does a pretty good job. He creates tension of who's it going to be. And then, and then we see, okay, how does, how does this incredibly strong fighter deal with this other incredibly strong fighter, both of whom we know are not actually doomed to fight, uh, to die in this fight. Um, it's, it's kind of an interesting problem for a storyteller, I guess. That's a fantastic answer. I feel like I learned a lot. Thanks. <laughs> You're welcome. I, uh, that's, a, that's something that I, uh, I mean, just like brief, a uh, brief side note. Um, whenever I teach the Odyssey, I'm constantly reminding my students that the poet expects that his audience has heard other versions, perhaps multiple versions of the stories that he's telling. And so pay attention to how do you how do you create an interesting and engaging remake? <laughs> so this is like the gritty reboot of the uh, the older version. The very, very grittiest. I think that's a really uh, important thing to keep top of mind. So thanks for thanks for reminding us all of that. Um, I feel like this is probably a good place to talk about what actually happens uh, in the fight between Hector <laughs> and Ajax. So let's uh, let's break that down a little bit. Coyle, would you like to take that for us? I mean, they wail on each other for a while and then stop it's it's so anticlimactic that uh uh yeah i mean i'm, I'm kind of with with david uh, how how do you make this interesting when everyone knows neither of them is going to die uh well you you have them beat on each other with swords i think at one point was it hector throws a rock at him yeah uh, he, like, he like dead arms him with a rock and then he gets dragged off yeah and 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 then it it gets dark and they shake hands and uh trade gifts uh which I, I guess would have been some cultural like something uh and go back to their respective sides i mean it's it's it is uh if i were writing a fight today based on you know having grown up watching hollywood movies this is not the fight i would have written even though there are some you know they are checking rocks at each other but again that's not that's not what i think when i think <laughs> two guys are going to fight with swords I, I actually thought the shield digression was kind of interesting, like especially yeah. in in terms of if we're talking about Hollywood movies, I feel like that would be a really cool like sepia toned flashback of the the guy in the hometown building the eight layers of shield and it's all fortified and old and interesting. I don't know, maybe that's just me. I, I honestly yeah. don't remember that part. Um, can you can you remind me what happens there? Uh. It's just this long, epic uh, catalog of Tikios building the shield. Tikios at home in Heil, far the best of all workers in leather, who had made him the great gleaming shield of sevenfold octide from strong bulls and hammered an eighthfold of bronze upon it. Telamonian Ajax, carrying this to cover his chest, came near to Hector and spoke to him words of menace, etc. Um, so it's it's really uh, not actually a catalog. It's just a few lines. Um, but to me, this idea of like there's honor in it because you hear about this artisan from his hometown and the layers of it. And I don't know. It seemed longer than it was to me. Uh, and I, I did sort yeah. of think of a flashback in my head. 
I mean, that's exactly what a director would do with it. I, I, I think, I think I, I hadn't thought about it in that way, but now that I'm looking back at it, like that's exactly what would happen at that point. Well, and it, and it becomes, it gets immediate payoff because uh, when when Hector hurls a spear at him, it strikes the great shield full upon the outer bronze, the eighth coat, and then through six coats the point ran, but held at the seventh. Yeah, so almost, but not quite. That's how uh, that's how good my man Tikios is. Yep. Yeah, it's it's almost like a close up, like one of those moments where you see, you know, the blade kind of go in almost CSI style, chunk 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 chunk, and then it stops. Um, that's that's really cool. Yay! I'm glad you thought that lame detail was interesting too. <laughs> no, I just you know you know I'm I I'm professionally invested in there being no lame details, so. Uh, you just gave me a way to teach this. Thank you. Cool. I What I really, the things that I like the most I'm discovering in rereading this is anytime we leave the battle and broaden the universe <laughs> in a way that like shows how other people are attached to all these people fighting. Because yes. I think it can be really easy to get lost in like this dude is fighting this other dude and they all have three different names and wait, who's a Greek? Wait, who's a Trojan? Wait, which god is on which side and why do I care? And like, it can just be really easy to get lost in it. But all this stuff, like, that connects us to either lineage or hometown, to me, grounds it and makes it feel more human and less like there's nothing at stake and I shouldn't care because the gods are just going to win anyway. Because we're recording these out of order, I'd, uh, and I suppose I could have pulled up some list somewhere, but um, here you are, and and I'll talk brief shop about the production of this. Were you, uh, Victoria, were you in the episode that covers books four and five? Um, what was I in? I did... The one directly before this one, which I think was five and six. Okay. Um, five does it too. Four does it and five does it. But uh, I, I guess you're, um, when, when you're, what, what you just said made me think of, and you're probably thinking of too, um, in those sections when basically every time somebody gets hit, this brief like biographical note it's almost like biography pop-up video just before they hit the ground oh yeah um, i was a panelist this... on that one yeah, i think it's four i yeah 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 i i i find that so so in i find that interesting too like this this moment where you briefly get to see and this guy's also really good at hunting or you know he married this person and this is a and then he hits the ground um yeah, all those all those little all those little digressions are, you know, just little nuggets of interesting. Yeah, I, I hate uh, to say that I think the most interesting parts of this poem about war are the parts that aren't as much about war, because uh, that seems like a dumb girly thing to say, but I I do believe it for reasons that I think are not dumb and girly. Well, it is a poem. It's 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 a. Uh... It's a storytelling problem for anyone who's writing action. 
you you can't just sort of keep saying and then he hits him and he hits him back and he hits him and he hits him back like there's you, you've uh, the storyteller's got to come up with something other than just that most basic action um to lend to lend interest and tension and texture um i mean i i find the the throwing of rocks is uh, he, Homer will periodically resort to rock throwing in order to give us a break from spears and swords. <laughs> um, and I like the gift exchange. I think that's a really interesting, a really interesting moment when, uh, well, in my translation, the way they render is it, they, these two fought indeed in bitter combat for a match, but they parted again in friendship. And that's how Hector wants everyone to remember what just happened. These two champions fought each other to a standstill and shook hands and went home having exchanged presents. Well, there's a, a number of sort of ritualistic pauses, I think, that happen um, all through the three books that we're talking about that all seem to be about uh, the honor of the fight. There's the gift exchange that you just mentioned. Um, there's also uh, Nestor proposes... Um, he seems to be like a, a perennial cool head in all of this, um, proposes a break in the fighting so that they could bury the dead. There's much discussion yeah. of, um, you know, when, after you and I fight, let's make sure that whoever wins, um, their, their body is, is respectfully returned to their people. All of these sort of honorable rituals seem to be breaking up, uh, the fighting and that, uh was helpful to me because I, I feel like I'm learning a lot about what's, uh, what's important culturally here. Yeah. Um, just sort of a side note and something that other listeners may be, uh, are probably familiar with is the Sophocles play Antigone, um, which, uh, begins with the tension over two brothers dying on opposite sides of a battle and a king, rendering the verdict that one shall be buried with honor and the other left for the birds. Um, and when you pay attention to, uh, if, if you as a reader of Antigone, pay attention to what you just noted, Victoria, um, you'll see just, just how, uh, heinous that move is, um, to deny burial. You know, they'll press pause on a 10 year war just to take time for honorable burials. Well, and it also foreshadows how the how the elite is going to develop towards the end. But you know, <laughs> are we limited in terms of spoilers? <laughs> I mean, historically, probably not. <laughs> but that's up to you. Yeah. Well, yeah. Let's just say it doesn't go well for a very important character, and a lot of it hinges on. Um, funerals at the end so that's enough yeah that's true we will get there eventually i let's see if we wanted to talk through these things in order we've got this big we've got this big fight scene um though of the of the of the three books that we read seven eight and nine um the one that i found most interesting in all its in all of its particulars is is nine um, I, I agree. What do we I, want to talk about in eight before we get to nine? If we want to do it in order, but um, 
Well, Are we bound to that? <laughs> I, I mean, I like to go in order, um, but I'm type A that way. So if you want to skip around, we can. Uh, though, can I can I say one more quick thing um, before we oh, leave yeah. book seven? Absolutely. Uh, so I I mentioned off air that I I dislike most of these characters. Um, and I, I mentioned in the previous episode that there is one character uh, that I dislike the most. That remains true um, as, as far as I've read through book nine, uh, and that is Paris. Paris continues to be the worst in book seven. Um, <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Because yeah. he... Uh, so I, I said earlier, Nestor is trying to like be a peacemaker and calm everybody down. And Nestor says, hey, you know it would probably be a good idea and stop some of this fighting if we just gave Helen back. Like, how about that, you guys? And Paris says, no, I won't give her back, but what I will do is return all the other stuff I took, because, you know, it's not like she's a person or anything, and I'm so nice, I'll give them some of my stuff, too. Ugh, Paris is just the worst. Like, did he did he not get the briefing on what the Trojan War was about or something? I I, I just like he's very dumb. He's very dumb all the way through and selfish. I know I'm not like this is not a hot take that Paris is dumb and selfish, but it is my opinion. <laughs> very cold take, coldest of takes. Well, I mean, <laughs> g- given that Hector's taking your side, and pr- actually, is there anyone in this book, including Helen? Who has anything nice to say about Paris? Anyone no, she shades him real hard a lot, and I'm here for it every single time. Oh yeah, I like a lot of times. I'm not a I'm not a Helen fan, uh, uh, but every every time that I'm I'm definitely on her, I'm on her side of the room. <laughs> um, uh, okay, so uh, is. Coyle, is there anything else you would like to say about book seven before we move on to the other ones? Uh, yeah, just just uh, briefly one more thing about the gifts at the end of the the fight between Ajax and Hector, which I guess I will I will be the minority report here in uh, being a little bit bummed that in a you know my my version of my translation of book seven is five hundred lines long, and only forty lines of it is actual combat. I I could have used a little more. <laughs> uh, Less uh, less description of shield making and more wailing on each other with swords. I'll, I, I I won't say a less description of shield making, but more wailing on each other. Yeah, with swords. that was four lines. Come on. It was no, it was true. And uh, actually, uh, once uh, uh, once you pointed it out, my translation actually says that. How does it say it? Uh, the shield was made from sturdy, well-fed bulls, which I think is great. Um, that is a pretty uh, so, wonderful yeah. detail. <laughs> Glad to know. Translation. Uh, so yeah, I, I think it's interesting that, uh, so again, in, in my translation at that moment when, uh, uh, David, you pointed out that uh, they, they, they part uh, in friendship, uh, before that, like four or five lines before that, uh, Hector says, hey, you go back to your side and there'll be, uh, I think he says, you'll, you'll bring joy to Akia's forces, right? Uh, they'll, they'll be happy because you're getting something and I'll go back to my side and, and my side will be happy because we're getting something. So it's, it's not just that, 
uh, each of them is getting a new toy out of this. It's uh, each side gets to claim the victory, right? Each each side is getting something out of both yeah. this battle and the uh, uh, and the exchange of gifts, which is such a great parallel given that they're both on opposite sides of the war with the very beginning, right? With Agamemnon and Achilles, uh, where you have two people on the same side who should be doing something like this, uh, who instead are dividing the Greeks, fighting with each other, stealing gifts from each other, stealing prizes from each other, which, yeah. uh, I mean, it's, it's, uh, uh, these two are adults in a place where, uh, Agamemnon and, uh, Achilles are not. Uh, and it's just, as, as highlighting and then of course later in the same book like you guys were pointing out uh paris has a chance to see how this kind of thing could have gone down and totally rejects it yeah yeah uh, I, I feel like uh so does anyone say anything good about Di- uh about paris i think diomedes i uh, there's there's something there there's a point in this book somewhere where he says basically this is great they're not going to give up Helen so we're going to get to torch the city, so he does sort of backhandedly praise Paris there for that decision. <laughs> but that's just because he's a bloodthirsty warmonger. It's not really a <laughs> he he's praising the outcome, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's an end, not a means. I I feel like that's not the same thing. But okay. Yeah, I can't. I can't find the line, so I don't remember exactly how he says it. But it, it's it is something along those lines where he's like, "This is this is great," um, and this is, and and I, yeah, I don't I don't remember where it where it is. I, I don't remember if it was because I want to kill people or if it was because this this is what the gods ordained or what. I don't remember that. Yeah. Ooh, I just um I just remembered something at the very end of the book that I that that I wanted to point out. I'd completely forgotten about this, and I get asked this question by students. Uh, I tell them they were at the they were you know camped out in front of toy for ten years, and sometimes they'll ask, "What did they eat?" <laughs> <laughs> but apparently, this boat shows up that's full of wine, and they just trade to get. Wine. So, I mean, maybe this is some little window in how they've managed to long term keep up this siege for so long. Uh, merchants know they're there and just sort of roll up with their stuff. I, it would be a good market, right? Like from from a merchant yeah. perspective, like yeah. if you know all of these hungry people are just there for so long. It would make sense to take advantage of that. I've never really thought about that question. That's interesting. Yeah, it's like food trucks rolling up to an army. Yeah, or like like food trucks <laughs> on a, a a job site or something. Well, I mean yes. food ships, but yeah, you know, food ships. Well, we were being anachronistically <laughs> comparative. Yes. Okay. Um, we're about at half time, so we should probably get moving. Um, since uh at least two of the three of us agree that book nine is the most interesting. Can we pull out um, one or two interesting things about book eight that we think are important to say and then keep moving? Uh, The point where Nestor gets, uh, gets in trouble, Um, his horse gets shot and Diomedes calls out for Odysseus to help 
and it says that Odysseus doesn't hear and just keeps going. So Diomedes has to save Nestor himself. Like that one little moment where you see someone say, help Odysseus. And then he just, he just keeps booking it. Um, I remember all Nestor does for Telemachus much, much later in the Odyssey and all the affection with which he speaks about Odysseus. And like to have this one little moment in here where did Odysseus hear? Did he really not hear? I don't know. I'm never really sure what to do with Odysseus in the Iliad. I did uh, have a rare feeling of affection for Diomedes in that moment. I thought like, oh, he's actually doing what people should do and not just acting like the Terminator. So that's cool. And it it obviously kills him too, right? To, To have to functionally run away from battle because he's helping Nestor. And I, I don't even know how many times it says that he wanted to turn back and kill Hector and he couldn't because it would have cost Hector his life or cost Nestor his life. Yeah. I, that that's, you know, Diomedes, Diomedes gets to be an actually stand up guy and not just a war machine. And he gets to save, gosh, I don't know everyone's, but, probably most people's favorite character in the Iliad. I love Grandpa Nestor. He's always good for a story. Yeah, he's such a, like, in terms of Greek values, you know, proper rhetoric is up there pretty high, and he's one of the best rhetoricians this book has, if you ask me. All of this would have been settled so much better, and, like, practically every human problem every every argument and dissension like large and small scale on the greek side that nestor weighs in on if people just listened to him like the book would have been over everyone have shaken hands and gone home but you know that's part of the will of the gods too they're the vultures up in the trees and you know the war makes them happy but but isn't that also i mean not to get too like navel gazy and literature has all the answers but isn't that such the human condition like that we don't we don't listen to our history as people and we don't think that it's as important or you know what do you know old man it was different back then kind of attitude like i i just feel like that is a a sin that real people repeat just as much as the people in this book do yeah it's a, it's a depressing note of realism. Bummer. All right. Yeah, sorry. I, 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 I agree with you. <laughs> um, I, I want to, before we leave book eight, I do think that that Nestor thing that you mentioned is uh, high on the list of important stuff that happens. Um, but I was really struck by the end of book eight because it was the first time in this text that I started to feel and, and tell me if I'm just projecting my own feelings as a monotheist from the 21st century here, but the end of book eight was the first time that I really started to feel, uh, a, a kind of polytheistic void, a, a case for, um, monotheism being a good thing because there's this section where um, 
the the battle is over and everybody's building their fortifications and fires and they're sitting in the dark of night and um, I'm just going to read from about 5.55, um, about 10 lines to the end of the book. As when in the sky the stars about the moon shining are seen in all their glory, when the air has fallen to stillness, and all the high places of the hills are clear, and the shoulders out jutting, and the deep ravines as endless bright air spills from the heavens, and the stars are seen to make the glad to make glad the heart of the shepherd. Such in their numbers blazed the watchfires the Trojans were burning between the waters of Xanthos and the ships before Ilion. A thousand fires were burning there in the plain, and beside each beside each one sat fifty men in the flare of the blazing firelight. And standing beside his chariot, champing white barley and oats, the horses waited for the dawn to mount to her high place. So there's this really peaceful kind of middle of the night restful scene uh that's really beautiful but the passage immediately prior says um essentially the only thing that matters is the decision of the gods so when all these people are praying and all their fires are burning the same and all the prayers are going up like whose prayers are heard by whom why what does it matter? Like, in the dark, in the middle of the night, when we're all alone in the same, whose prayers are going up and whose aren't? Well, I think, uh, I mean, I, I guess I don't know, in that, that passage that you started, it says, so their spirits soared. I assumed that that there was referring to Hector and the Trojans, since it was Hector who was just giving the speech to the Trojans sort of in parallel, right, as as Zeus is giving the speech to the gods, we have this simultaneous action with Hector uh, giving the speech to the Trojans. Um, yeah, I think that's true. I started really kind of in the middle, but yeah. Uh, like this, this we're going to go down and, and the gods, uh, we'll, we'll pray that the gods will be on their side and that, that stirs them up. And I guess I, I read the end of that, the end of the book as this is the Trojans who are sitting peacefully and, um, uh, waiting on dawn uh because you know this this is the book where they they have the big win right the the big military victory all right maybe you're right and i am projecting well i mean it 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 doesn't it doesn't say so their spirits could be both the greeks and the trojans uh or it could be just one of them i just in context i i had i had just assumed it was the trojans it could be both sides well as you zoom up from this plane how are you going to know which fires are which? You know? Yeah, that, um, that's kind of what I was going on, like this really kind yeah, of fair. desolate, small visual. Sure. Yeah. Well, no, ex- except it, uh... Yeah, again, there's that, that fires burning between the ships and the Xanthus set by the oh, men of yeah. Troy. It does say where it is. All right, I might be wrong. Whose ever fires it yeah. was, it made me sad. My translation, I think, is leaving out a lot of a lot of the details that y'all are citing. Um, I'm reading an older uh, when was this published? Like 1920s, probably. Guy named. W.H.D. Rouse, it's a, it's a prose translation, and it reads very much like a novel. Um, but I think there's a lot of kind of little details, epithets, 
um, that are kind of falling out. Uh, I feel like it's it's impeding my ability to make the distinction that y'all just made. Is it is it one of those that's old enough it still has the Victorian sensibilities so they cut out all of the unpleasantness? Because I, I got in trouble no. in undergrad reading a Latin text that had all of the sex and violence and profanity cut out of it. No, I mean, this one is, uh, oh gosh, uh, post, post Great War, I think. Um, I don't think it's, okay, copyright 1938. Okay, well, so. It's probably. Yeah, um, and it's, 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 it's pretty gory and he'll use the profanity when that that's, uh, that's fitting to the occasion. Um, but I feel like if I had, uh, probably a closer verse translation that I would be able to see the places where he smoothed, uh, smoothed the translation out by dropping things in order to make the prose read easier. But, you know, it reads good. It has a cool cover. Classics edition. Um, that their Iliad and their Odyssey uh, both have half of a helmeted man's face on them, and if you put the two books together, the two halves make a whole face. Oh, that's cool. Nice. nice. Yeah, it's pretty neat. Okay, so David, you mentioned you really like book nine. Uh, since we have arrived at book nine, tell us why. Why do you think it's the most interesting of these three? Um, I find the uh, I find the attempts at persuasion. Um, I find them interesting. Uh, I love the old man uh, Phoenix um, and his interactions with Achilles. Uh, I think this might be. Uh, Diomedes got to have his rescue Nestor and human and get humanized moment. Um, this moment feels pretty humanizing for me in terms of Agamemnon. Um, I don't like him, but I feel a little more sorry for him now as at least he kind of realizes the degree to which all of this is his own fault. Um, do you uh, want to take us there? Yeah. Um, Agamemnon rose with tears running down his cheeks at the beginning of book nine as a clear spring sprinkles over a rock, groans deeply, and says, Zeus, son of Kronos, has shackled me in the chains of blind madness. Hard God. Um, once uh, he promised that I should sack the fenced city of Ilios before I should return, but now he's contrived a cruel deceit bids me go back to Argos dishonored after losing so many lives. Sure, mu such must be the pleasure of Almighty God, who has brought low the heads of many cities, and will yet bring many low, for his power is greatest of all. How ah, well, let us make up our minds to do it, and escape with our ships to our native land, for now we shall never take the city of Troy. Um, Diomedes is like, well, I want to keep fighting Troy, even if I have to do it with myself. Um... But then uh, uh, Nestor calls uh, – is it Nestor who calls him out? Um, yeah. On Achilles he... it being his Achilles' fault? Yeah, he sort of tries to broker peace 
and yeah. and um, says Agamemnon has these good points, and Diomedes Diomedes has these good points, um, but then. Nestor kind of backpedals just a little bit and says, hey, Agamemnon, sometimes uh, you're too prideful. Yeah. When he says it, I was blinded and gave way to my wretched passion. Um, blind madness is the phrase. Uh, my bl- I was blind and I don't deny it. Um, and then I wish... Uh, we talked about culture before. I wish I knew what the deal with tripods are. They apparently think they're awesome. Um, but I, I, I don't get the tripods. But tripods and gold and cauldrons and horses and um, seven women plus one woman plus 20 more women when they take Troy plus one of his daughters. That's... I mean, I've run out of fingers. That's a lot of women. It is a lot of women. Also, can you explain to me what the deal is? Like, so it's this list of stuff, which includes a list of women who are the same as the stuff. And then he says, uh, and there's a sort of side note where he says, and to all this, I will swear a great oath. Um, He's talking about. Bryce's, uh, that I never entered into her bed and never lay with her as is natural for human people between men and women. So, I'm gonna give you all these stuff and all these women, but I'm honorable. I didn't sleep with her, I swear. Like, that seemed to come out of nowhere to me. Yeah. I... Does he... Do you think he's saying that in order to uh, to try to say that this this return for the affront to Achilles will actually undo it. Um, because if, I mean, if he cohabited with her, um, Achilles, that, that might affect Achilles, um, receiving her back again. I suppose that's true. But to me, like the whole list is just so long and so one thing on top of the other that like he's trying so hard that to me it comes off as insincere. But maybe that's just me. Well, yeah, he he clearly doesn't get it because he he ends with uh, this is uh, a 190 in, in my translation, the end of what he's. He's the message he's sending with these guys to Achilles. Uh, all this I would extend to him if he will end his anger. Let him submit to me. Only the god of death is so relentless. Death submits to no one. So mortals hate him most of all the gods. And then he says, uh, which I think this is really, this really shows that Agamemnon just doesn't understand why Achilles is upset. Uh, let him bow down to me. I am the greater king. I am the elder born. I claim the greater man. And I, I think that's, I mean, the, the point of what makes the Iliad such a unique book and what I think in, in some ways sets kind of what's going on in Western civilization apart from what's going on in all of the other cultures at the time is you have this Achilles who's willing to say to the king, I'm better than you, and then back it up with some kind of action. I mean, you can't, even just thinking of the uh, uh, the you know the monarchs in the Bible, no no one's going to say to Nebuchadnezzar, "I'm better than you." I mean, that's that's uh, that's what fiery furnaces are for, right? Um, no no one's going to say to Pharaoh, "I'm better than you," uh, and yet we have Achilles who says, "Hey, you're not actually better than me." Yeah. 
so I think the the gifts. What I, I I don't know if it's like if he if he really thinks this will work or not, but I think it shows that he doesn't understand why Achilles was so upset. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, especially since he wants to say all these gifts, all these all, all these gifts, all these gifts, but I still have precedence. You know, I, he's he wants to be able to say my lavish generosity from my position of power can resolve this when it was precisely his power play that was the problem. Right. Which they, uh, when, when they go, it's interesting that Odysseus leaves, leaves that bit out. And what does he replace it with? Like a comeback and all of these things that Agamemnon will give you and you'll get to kill Hector uh, instead of, you know, <laughs> yes. <laughs> And Hector, I mean, hey, you know, that was a good trophy. Yeah, I I kind of really love Diplomat Odysseus in that scene. I think it's it's interesting, um, having seen everything you just said about what Agamemnon does to to maintain distance. Um, I, I did find a, a kind of humor in Odysseus, sort of, even though he doesn't tell you, you can sort of feel him working it out in his head, like, okay, say this, don't say that, say this, don't say that. Yeah, I mean, because it's such a close, um, I mean, some some of the lines I imagine are probably verbatim repeated in Greek, but those yeah, details they, that they, are... They are, there are yeah. some repeated details that I could, I could kind of really feel the oral tradition coming out there. Yeah. Right. Uh, what do you make of Achilles playing a harp when they come and find him? That, I thought, was a really funny detail. It's because his guard is down when he's with Patroclus, right? That that was my assumption. Like, their, their relationship is so mm, yeah. intimate um, that that, that um, the harp, which is a, a very um, domestic trope um, in, in this period, uh, seemed to, to telegraph that intimacy to me. Yeah, there aren't, um, check me if I'm wrong, um, I, there's still whole chunks of Iliad, um, there, there's still some bits that I need to review, uh, for, for other episodes of this that I'm in, um, but in the Odyssey, the only people that I can remember, it specifies them singing, are the more or less professional rhapsodes who entertain at feasts. Um, and then the Odyssey has this repeated description of women singing in the domestic space as they weave. And the sirens. And the sirens. Oh, well, that's, yeah. <laughs> the, the most important singers in the Odyssey. Yeah. But but in terms of human singers, I, I right. th- th- this this struck me as as is very odd and my I, my memory is not fresh enough of the back half of the Iliad to remember to be able to say like how strange is this strange is this normal is it cool is is this any way in any way um compromising our impression of who Achilles is up to this point that he's he's in his in his tent playing a harp singing I think it humanizes him 
it might be like a perfectly normal Greek thing to be doing. I, I honestly don't know, but uh, my uh, my translation says liar. So the uh, you know L Y R E. Yeah. So uh, uh, my uh, my first image of this, uh, I definitely got a little judgy uh, because both <laughs> now uh, and uh, and when I was uh, a student, uh, when I would be walking around campus and pe- pe- see people uh, sitting out with their guitar playing, you know, in uh, by the fountain or whatever, I would always kind of roll my eyes and judge them a little bit. And I did kind of the same thing to Achilles here, too. Oh, he's like that guy in the quad with yeah. the acoustic. Yes. Um, <laughs> I don't know if that's what we're supposed to think, but it's not out of character for him to be that. I mean, no judgment. I dated several of those guys in college, so, you know, <laughs> your your mileage may vary, whatever. But I... I I did, maybe because I dated several of those guys in college, um, I did kind of sympathize with that image of, of Achilles. It it, uh, it was soft in a nice way to me. See, now I really want to ask a follow-up, a follow-up question about Michael, but I won't. So uh, He does play guitar. Did he ever play in a quad? I'm sure. I, he's four years older than me, and we didn't go to college together. Uh, but I mean, probably you'll have to ask him. Has he ever sat in a tent and sulked because someone stole something from him? I'm going to go with no, but I, again, I was not present his entire life, so I don't know. I mean, there was that brief period of his life when he was in a Kian war machine. Um, and no, probably not. Uh, so we should probably talk about, um, fetuses, prophecy for achilles before we get to the end of book nine yeah this is this is so important um and i feel i feel like his uh his emotional reactions to uh, agamemnon's treatment of him at the beginning of the book um and his continued you know books long sulk um, I feel like it would have made a lot more sense to an audience who had this detail in their mind from the beginning, which, you know, I don't know that all readers these days of the Iliad necessarily know the degree to which Achilles knows he's making um, a really hard choice by staying. Like, half of that stuff that Agamemnon promises him if his mother's prophecy is true and he stays uh, he won't get to claim that yeah that that definitely changes um, changes perspective I think we should probably since it is so important read the prophecy aloud so I'm going to do that this starts uh, about line 410 in book 9 For my mother, Thetis, the goddess of the silver feet, tells me I carry two swords of destiny toward the day of my death. Either, if I stay here and fight beside the city of the Trojans, my return home is gone, but my glory shall be everlasting. But if I return home to the beloved land of my fathers, the excellence of my glory is gone, but there will be a long life left for me, and my end in death will not come to me quickly." And this would be my counsel to others also, to sail back home again, since no longer shall you find any term set set on the sheer city of Ilion. So he's got two choices. Stay and fight and die quickly, but get glory, or go home and live a long life and not get glory. So was, was the uh, 
was the impression that you guys got that that Phoenix was telling him that that wasn't necessarily the case because that's that's kind of that's kind of how I read at least part of his speech to him was hey you know the the gods can change and if you make the right sacrifices and pray uh, then even Zeus can change his mind um, hmm. so, so this is a uh, Line 600, I guess, in my translation. Uh, he says, um, uh, it's wrong to, uh, Achilles, beat down your mounting fury. It's wrong to have such an iron, ruthless heart. Even the gods themselves can bend and change, and theirs is the greater power, honor, strength. Uh, even the gods, I say, with incense, soothing vows, with full cups poured in the deep, smoky savor, men can bring them round, begging for pardon when one oversteps the mark, does something wrong. We do have prayers, you know, prayers for forgiveness. And then he goes on uh, and then warns about, you know, the, the stubbornness and the, the, the ruin that comes for from uh, refusing to do any of those things. So he, he doesn't come right out and say that that prophecy was wrong, but it, it kind of sounds like he's suggesting that maybe you can stay and fight and not die young, both both being the case. Uh, the, the gods can be changed. Am, am I misreading this? I I don't think you are. At least I think that he thinks that. But I don't know that we're supposed to believe him because in the rest yeah. of his, uh, his I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed, essentially, uh, spe- <laughs> speech to, uh, to Achilles, which is always the worst thing your parent figure can ever say to you, right? Um, yeah, he, he, you know they're mad too. Yeah, but it's like worse. It's a knife twist. Uh, they, he just like lays this super thick guilt trip about how much he's invested uh, in Achilles and goes back generations and talks about all these other people. Um, so I was reading that as maybe him believing that the prophecy wouldn't work because it sort of makes everything else he's saying more true. Because I, I don't think as readers, given everything we've already read and said about the power of the gods, like, are we really supposed to discount prophecy here? Like, really? I wish I could remember precisely where it is. I think it's later in the book. Um, but Hector questions bird omens. And then prior to that, he had been encouraging the Trojans saying clearly Zeus is on our side. Uh, he's uh, urging women a few books before this one um, to go and pray to Athena to, to make Diomedes let up. So it seems as if at least rhetorically they will credit the gods for control of the situation or discount that depending on what's rhetorically expedient. And so, but which then makes it kind of difficult to say, what do they actually believe um, inside their heart? Uh, this is one of the things, interestingly, that uh, I, I, I can't remember whether there's, any, whether there's any parts in Homer, but in Virgil, there's a scene where Aeneas encourages the Trojan people, pumps them up, and then it says, and he doesn't actually believe any of this in his heart, but he puts on a brave face. Well, so, I mean, I, so I wonder whether sometimes that's what's going on. 
it would definitely undermine sort of the grandfatherly image of Phoenix if he if he knows that he's not telling uh, Achilles the truth and he knows that the prophecy is true and he's trying to undermine it and get him to stay there and die anyway. Yeah. I mean, maybe it just means his priorities are for the greater good, though. Which is the greater glory. Right. I, I mean, I'm, I'm ventriloquizing. I'm not, that's not my opinion. <laughs> um, th- this bit, I, I love this bit. Uh, I, I think may, maybe the implication that the gods could relent on your fate Achilles, my, I, I mean, I hadn't seen that there, Coil. Um, I mean, b- that may be an implication of it. But I read this uh, that section where he's describing the way that the, the gods respond to prayer, the ways that they respond to sacrifice, to gifts. And then uh, he makes it precisely parallel to the way that you respond to Atreides and his requests and his and his gifts. And then after that, he says, have we not heard of the stories of heroes and time past when one was possessed of swelling anger? They were moved with gifts. They were reconciled with good words. And then he tells a story to illustrate this. Um, I, mean, he, I, I read it as a, a fatherly, grandfatherly, mentorly, if that's a word, concern with the fact that Achilles is behaving badly. And so he's saying the gods, the gods behave in a particular way. Heroes behave in a particular way. You're not behaving in that exemplary way. And that really disappoints me. Um, the, the, I'm disappointed in you speech. Like you said, Victoria, I I think your point about the invocation of tradition, um, is better than my reading. I think it makes it less, um, a little less manipulative than I than I initially read it. So thanks for that. Well, we know that when they walked into the tent, they caught Achilles singing songs of the adventures and feats of valor of old heroes. And who taught him those songs? Ooh, that's a good point. I like that a lot. You know who who instilled this this set of values and virtues in him that he even seeks out this kind of life uh, phoenix s- presents himself as as the one who made him the hero he is through his through his teaching and through his training and so um that the i i read these as reminders remember your lessons remember remember who i brought you up to be which is one of the reasons why I love him. Phoenix, that is, not Achilles. So I, I, I think, I think we can, uh, we can say that if if these three books have a moral, they are. Uh, don't forget the lessons of the elderly people in your life. If we learn that from Phoenix and Nestor here. Oh yeah. Sure. Oh yeah. It's a theme. It is. All right, we are uh, a few minutes over an hour, so can we perhaps skip Diomedes' final speech and end on that positive note? Uh, Respect the elderly in your life. 
listeners. Uh, and thanks for listening to episode four of the core curriculum, which is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Uh, we'll see you again in a week.